Welcome to episode 33 of Sassmouth Dame's podcast. What's your favorite Lubitsch picture that was not made by Ernest Lubitsch? If it isn't William Wyler's The Good Fairy, which I talked about way back in episode 5, then surely it must be René Clair's I Married a Witch from 1942. A playful, seductive rapport runs between the leads, Veronica Lake and Frederick March, as much as it did for Kay Francis or Miriam Hopkins with Herbert Marshall from Trouble in Paradise from 1932. In an interview, René Claire recalled when he met Chaplin one day, and Chaplin said he had just seen I Married a Witch. He said he didn't need to see the credits, he said, because he knew after two minutes that it was a René Claire picture. Claire was pleased. He told the interviewer that I Married a Witch was a real René Claire picture. In League with Lubitsch and Weiler, René Claire created modern fables that just so happened to feature Sassmouth Dames. You know I adore directors who approached women's pictures as a prestige assignment rather than an irksome chore required by their studio contract. Although his picture from the year before, The Flame of New Orleans, with Marlena Dietrich and Teresa Harris, was not a success at the box office, it hosts one of the most visually arresting opening scenes in movie history. The sight of a wedding gown floating down the Mississippi River, consigned to a watery grave, along with a bouquet, presents the ultimate runaway bride look. If it doesn't count as a feminist statement, then I don't know my onions. For I Married a Witch, Renee Claire characterizes a woman who makes no bones about her carnal desire. Audiences recognize that she's gasping for it, unhampered by any sense of shame. Woman's pictures show us women who pursue their attraction with a single-minded enthusiasm. Veronica Lake's Jennifer would no more wait for a man to make the first move than she would take a bus when she can fly on a broomstick. The story is an old one. In the 1600s, a powerful witch and her father are condemned by a town of doom-minded Puritans, burned, buried, and then bound by an oak tree to keep them trapped in the spot. Jennifer and her father cool their heels under the New England countryside for a few hundred years. But not before Jennifer issues one parting shot, a curse that condemns men in future generations of the po-faced woolly clan to unhappy marriages to the wrong women. A montage of hectoring wives who plague woolly men passes, until by the way of jazz music and slinky gowns cut low and back, we arrive in the modern era. One scene set during a party, director Renee Clare uses a bit of pathetic fallacy by using an electrical storm, which mirrors the present-day Wooly and his fractious intended Estelle, played by the brilliant Susan Hayward. Wooly and Estelle bicker and snap at each other as a bolt of lightning strikes the tree where Jennifer and her father lay trapped. At last, their spirits float free in the air. Jennifer and her father have no bodies to speak of. They are mini clouds of witches' smoke. Over to the window they float to watch the party-goers. They observe a couple exchanging slang. The language has changed. The slinky gowns prove that the clothes have changed. 
But when they see a couple locked in a kiss, Jennifer notes that some things haven't changed. Lake's plume of smoke hovers over the pair of lovers and asks her father, played by Cecil Kellaway, "'Twould be nice to have lips, lips to whisper lies, lips to kiss man and make him suffer. Father, why cannot I have lips and eyes and hair? I'm guessing any number of men would volunteer for the privilege. She requests a body from her father, with just a slight bit of wine in her voice. The elder witch spies the rooftop sign for the Pilgrim Hotel and summons fire on the roof. Since fire stole their corporeal form, it shall return it. Wallace Woolley happens to be with Estelle in tow and his friend Dr. Dudley White, played by Robert Benchley. He has the screwball role of best friend in enviable position since he's scripted with delicious throwaway lines that he delivers in between highballs. Wooly hears Jennifer calling out from inside the burning building, and he rushes in to save her, which leads us to kind of suspect that she already exercises power over the man before they've even met. She leads him to her through the smoke. She hasn't any clothes. They were all burned up, she explains. Jennifer wants a mirror. After all, if you were given a new body, you'd want to see how it turned out. Conveniently, the first thing she finds to put on are a three-quarter length mink coat and mink-lined boots. Only the best when you're a stunner. She flirts unabashedly, even as the ceiling caves in. Wally carries the mink-wrapped woman to safety, but he won't be rid of her yet. Estelle, all in white, looks like an ice princess compared to the bundle and fur that Wally cradles, but then deposits in the doctor's arms. Forget Veronica Lake and her sexy femme fatale roles. She was born to be a comedian. Lake should have been the natural successor to the vacuum Carol Lombard left in pictures when she died tragically young. Veronica wields a delightful element of surprise because she's an unexpectedly wry sass mouth hiding behind famous cascading tresses. Lake, with a deep voice and half-smile, delivers lines with more punch than a left hook. You never see her coming. Veronica does this bit of business with a box of matches that bowls me over every single time. They should use it in acting schools if there ever is one for screwball antics. She's in that prim nightgown hired from the lady who owns the little B&B where she stopped to marry Freddie March. It evokes the Puritan fashion of those who burn her at the stake. Veronica's Jennifer wants to light the fire for her husband, but she's never actually had to strike a match. All she ever need do was say a few words and stretch out her hand. This is a small moment in many ways. You could overlook it. But watch what she does. Could you hold a match as though you've never held one? Make something so familiar and small and mundane seem awkward and unknown? the wooden sticks fail to strike. In her tiny little hand, the matches break and crumble as though they were made of dust. She can't raise a spark. When she asks the lady of the house about how to use the matches, the older woman flashes a long-suffering look forged by a woman many decades in the coal face of marriage. The older woman replies, yes, dear, that's how matches work. She might as well roll her eyes at the hapless newlywed. But the audience realizes that Veronica is so far removed from the banal rituals of modern-day womanhood. How exactly will she make this wife-lark work? 
Veronica Lake burns up the screen with throwaway lines such as, that's not my father, that's just a body he picked up. And ever hear of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? That was our crowd. She closes that line with a sharp knowing nod that leads viewers to understand how much power you can summon when you are criminally underestimated. It's the best line in the picture. Rather like with Carol Lombard or Hedy Lamarr or Ava Gardner, men lose the run of themselves when they realize a woman outsmarts them. If humor depends on the incongruous, audiences can locate plenty of it in a witch who falls victim to her own spellcraft. Instead of following an anticipated narrative path of yet another bewitched man, another notch on Jennifer's cauldron, the plot twists in the other direction. Wearing a pair of Freddie March's striped pajamas, which make Veronica Lake look devastatingly cute, she mixes a love potion to seal the deal. The plan with her father Daniel was designed for revenge, albeit centuries removed, from the ancestor who punished them for witchcraft. Jennifer will make him a poppet, her plaything. She thought she could do it the natural way, she said. Her father asked why she hadn't used the filter. Her beauty isn't quite enough to snare him in the trap, so Daniel reminds her of the incantation to reduce men to the slaves of love's captivity. It's a testimony to the strength of her own magical power that she falls so completely in love with a man devoid of backbone, charm, or charisma. He doesn't win her over by any means, nor does he deserve her. The genius of the gag is that Veronica Lake's Jennifer falls victim to her own magic. She's so powerful that she dooms herself to life with a mere mortal who lacks foresight or powers of observation. Renee Claire's film is a bristling satire of inept and poorly matched husbands who lack the foresight to recognize the innate gifts women have. I Married a Witch concocts the most delicious incongruity for our pleasure, a gorgeous woman throwing herself at an unworthy man. Viewers know that Wally has also fallen in love with the woman in his pajamas because he does what men often do. He stays up all night talking at her, and he doesn't notice the hours fly by. Later, when she's dressed in a gown that emphasizes her wasp waist, he remarks at how beautiful she is in clothes. Now he can see her beautiful figure as she isn't swallowed up in fur or his oversized jammies. Lake Screencraft shares a key trait with the best of classic woman's picture actors, such as Joan Crawford and Myrna Loy. They both relied on underplay to keep it small, concentrate on the feeling, and draw the viewer in closer and closer. Lake's speaking voice, although deep, is also distinctly soft and low. You nearly lean forward to hear her sometimes, but a witch need not resort to scenery chewing. In her memoir, Veronica Lake does not disguise how much she hated her leading man. Freddie March's biographer, Charles Tranberg, downplays the actor's predatory nature by referring to his behavior as being mischievous Freddie, who had 20 fingers routine employed in continuous bottom pinching, which Lake naturally objected to. Lake believed that March was just another old horny guy. He was born in 1897. That made him 25 years older than Veronica Lake, who was born in 1922. Tranberg reports that March's sexual overtures were rebuffed. When he could not badger her into sleeping with him, March turned nasty like many men do when they're refused. He disparaged her talent and bullied her on set. 
March referred to the production as I Married a Bitch. You know, someday we may actually get to read biographers who do not dismiss sex pests as madcap hijinks. And someday folks will stop applying March's point of view when assessing Veronica Lake's talent and performance in this film. In her memoir, Veronica, the autobiography of Veronica Lake, published in 1970, she recalled, And I hated Frederick March. I don't believe there is another actor for whom I harbor such deep dislike as Frederick March. It's strictly personal. We all know and recognize what a fine and distinguished actor he is. But working with him gave me the feeling of being a captive in a Charles Adams tower. He gave me a terrible time during I Married a Witch. I'm sure that despite what Rene thought, March considered me a brainless little blonde sex pot, void of any acting ability and not likely to acquire any. He treated me like dirt under his talented feet. Of all the actors to end up under the covers with. That happened in one scene and Mr. March is lucky he didn't get my knee in his groin. What he didn't realize was that this sexy no-talent Brooklyn blonde had a vindictive streak in her. I set right out to give it back to Mr. March. I got to do it twice, really. There were other small moments when I felt I'd push back a little, but two incidents stand out in my mind as particularly effective examples of getting even with my co-star. One scene had me in a rocking chair. A picture falls off the wall and strikes me unconscious. I'm supposed to sit in the chair without movement while March desperately attempts to talk to me. The shot was medium, showing only the two of us from waist high. We were into that scene and he came close to me. He was standing directly in front of the chair. I carefully brought my foot up between his legs, and I moved my foot up and down, each upward movement pushing it ever so slightly into his groin. Pro that he is, he never showed his predicament during the scene. But it wasn't easy for him, and I delighted simply in what was going through his mind. Naturally, when the scene was over, he laced into me. I just smiled. The second time I was able to give vent to my vengeance was during a scene in which March was supposed to carry me off into the distance. The cameraman rigged a 40-pound weight under my dress. We did the scene's opening business, and then Frederick picked me up. Naturally, he expected no difficulty with little tiny me. But in that 40 pounds of extra dead weight, it made one hell of a difference. I could hear March grunt under his breath as he valiantly carried out the script's directions. We did the scene three more times, and each one brought on a definite decline in his strength. He put me down for the final time and scowled at me. Big bones, I said, and walked away. He heard about what had been done a few days later, and the wall was built permanently, never to come down again. We've seen each other a few times since then, and we never speak to each other. Oh, well. The old chestnut about a thin line between love and hate works well in this picture. Probably the only surefire kiss of death for a leading couple in a romantic picture is indifference. The fact that Lake had her foot on his balls and weighted herself with 40 pounds is really just icing on the cake. It works. March didn't have anything nice to say about his co-star, but he did praise Susan Hayward. March's biographer, Charles Tranberg, quotes March as saying, She was touchy on set, and it was a rare day when she mingled with the cast, but somewhere along the line she learned to act. Every inch of that woman is an actress. 
In fairness, Susan Hayward doesn't have much to do, but she transforms a role that could have easily been one-dimensional and forgettable into one that stands out and is memorable. At least once a month, I think about the hyena grin Hayward flashes when she marches down the aisle. Her face looks as though she were wearing sword and shield into battle rather than going to exchange vows. Completely flustered and exasperated from the multiple false starts, Hayward's Estelle wants to scream at the groom. Instead, on her father's arm, when he commands her to smile, she flashes a grin that looks far more textbook witch than any reaction we receive from the glossy-headed blonde. In anger, Susan Hayward's lips shrink away from her teeth that seem ready to pull out a jugular vein as though it were a rope of red licorice. She promises he'll pay for this, which is an hilarious parting shot before nuptials exchanged. Hayward's Estelle gives us one of the best reaction shots for the ages. The first delay to the wedding ceremony occurs when the witches enter. The heavy wooden doors blow open and summon a hurricane-grade gust of wind. Leaves swirl, hair flies up, guests cower and scatter, floral arrangements topple, and in the doorway, Jennifer and Daniel stand looking supremely confident. Cecil Kellaway is the perfect man to play the role of the old witch. He looks about as dangerous as Santa Claus, which again gives us a nice bit of incongruity. Had he worn a goatee or had waggling eyebrows, the effect wouldn't be half as inspired. Instead, he looks like an elder cherub. When he drops a zinger like, don't tell me what I've got, I invented the hangover in 1892 B.C. It's funnier because he looks so innocent and mild. Casting against type has great appeal in this picture. There's no debauched paterfamilias and there's no green-faced daughter. Veronica Lake's costumes by Edith Head bring dimension to her performance. First, the mink coat is just the right length for her tiny little frame, and it reminds us that mink is the most appropriate garment for a bombshell. There's the sherbet-hued gown, when March first notices or remarks on her beauty. Then there's the showstopper gown, which she wears to just sit around the house. It's in black, with a heart-shaped bodice, underneath wisps of chiffon. In her memoir, Veronica said it was her ultimate favorite dress of all the clothes she wore on screen. Then, when they are fog-bound and about to be married, she wears that pointed hood, which seems the perfect traveling coke for a modern-day witch. On her wedding night, rented at the price of 50 cents, she wears that Puritan-looking nightgown, long and prim, just right for confessing that she's really a witch. Wally doesn't heed her confession. All he can think about is unwrapping his new bride. He initially thinks she's disclosing her sexual history, and Wally waves that off with the admission that he hasn't exactly been a saint either. He doesn't care about her past. The only thing that matters is that they are together now. You can see how the television show Bewitched built upon this idea for Elizabeth Montgomery. It's sad, though, that mid-century estimations of women limited the idea of witchcraft's power to doing housework and advancing the career of a bumbling husband. Finally, the sight at the end of this picture of little blonde Anne Carter, who plays the carbon copy daughter Jennifer, riding a broomstick, will melt your heart. You can watch it online. Google I Marry a Witch 1942 OK.RU and you'll find it on that Russian website. 
but really you can't beat the Criterion DVD that I have in my library. I'll close the episode with an excerpt from the interview Rene Claire gave to R.C. Dale, published in Film Quarterly in the 1970-1971 winter edition, entitled Rene Claire in Hollywood, an interview. Bob Peroche and I worked very well together. We got out what we considered to be a reasonable script for I Married a Witch, but the front office didn't like everything we'd done, so we changed the script considerably. After a lot of rewriting, we finally got an approval from them and started shooting. Of course, neither of us intended to shoot the approved script exactly as it had been submitted, so we would sometimes sit up late at night rewriting the script for the next day's shooting. And every morning, Buddy De Silva would go to the screening room to watch the rushes. He had to watch the rushes for six or seven pictures every day, and he certainly couldn't keep every shot of all those pictures in his head. He liked what he saw in our film, so he never bothered checking up on us to see whether we were shooting the approved script. It never occurred to him that we were working at night on the real script and then shooting during the day. The interviewer asks, so in a sense you had a free hand, but wasn't Preston Sturgis assigned as the producer for that picture? Yes, my agent Myron Selznix had sent me the book, The Passionate Witch. I read it and thought I could do something with it. I met Preston, who eventually became a good friend of mine. He spoke French as well as I do, and who was then the leading director of Paramount. We talked over the project, and he agreed to produce it for me. Paramount had been trying to find something right for Veronica Lake, who had been receiving lots of publicity, partly because of her beautiful hair. They didn't want an ordinary role for her, and Preston convinced them that I Married a Witch was just what they needed. That's what did it. Veronica Lake got me that job. She was a lot more important to Paramount than I was, believe me. So, of course, when I went to work for on the picture, Preston was busy directing something else, so he didn't know exactly what was happening either. Poor Preston. He was one of my best friends, but he was really a little too strange for Hollywood. He was raised in France, you know, born in America, but raised in France. His mother was quite rich, and she was a great admirer of Isadora Duncan and her group of neo-Greeks. She used to wear Greek gowns everywhere, and her friends could be seen walking the Champs-Élysées, dressed in togas and sandals in the middle of winter. Poor Preston had to ride to school on his bicycle, wearing a short little toga. Paris is probably the worst city in the world for that sort of thing. You can imagine what he had to go through on his way to school every day. Kids not only shouting insults at him all the time, but also throwing stones in mud and making him suffer all kinds of indignities. It's pretty hard to come out of a childhood like that and still be sane. The interviewer asks, He was certainly one of the most talented oddballs who ever worked in Hollywood. I've noticed in our conversations that you tend to minimize the actual job of directing in your mind, and rather to concentrate the importance in areas of writing and cutting. I take it you didn't adopt the Hollywood system of multiple angle shooting in which the scenes or sequences were actually resolved in the cutting room. No, I've never done that. For me, after writing, cutting is the most important part of filmmaking. Or let me put it this way, to clarify what I mean. There are three important elements in filmmaking, writing the script, shooting, and cutting. If I had to abandon one of them, it would be the shooting. After all, with a bad script and a bad cutter, what can a good director do? But a cutter can often ruin a good film and sometimes even save a bad one. 
For that reason, I write my script so that in a sense, I can practically cut with my camera as I'm shooting. As a result, the cutting process is a very easy and very obvious. I suppose you could say that I cut as I write and then again as I shoot. When I was making I Married a Witch, Buddy De Silva went to see my cutter, Ida Warren, one day. He'd been wondering what was going on. He was used to seeing several thousands of feet of rushes a day from his directors, and I was turning out maybe 450 a day. He couldn't figure out why I was working so slowly, and he also couldn't imagine how my footage could be cut into coherent sequences, since I did make five or six different shots of every scene. So Ida Warren cut a sequence for him to show him that indeed it could be done, and he went away satisfied but surprised, and never mentioned it to me at all. And he was amazed that the picture was shot in five weeks. It wasn't much of a secret. I simply shot exactly what I knew I would need, whereas some directors at that time were shooting everything they could conceivably turn their lenses on. I was told that few of them ever came near a cutting room, and I'm always amused to read about some director's brilliant cutting when I know for a fact that the man had never set foot in a cutting room. For the most part, supervision of cutting was always the producer's business. That wasn't always true, of course. Such great directors as Lubitsch and Weiler watched over their own cutting. I think the Hollywood practice of shooting a scene from lots of different angles was initiated by Irving Thalberg. In any case, I call it the Irving Thalberg School of Cinema. And you see, he was very wise, for it enabled him to control the cutting of the film himself. And if you control the cutting of the film, God knows you control the film. Thalberg could take the film cut out of a director's hands with no trouble at all and cut it how he liked. That would have been very hard to do with one of my pictures because the way it was shot. Don't forget that, for the most part, Hollywood was a factory, set up like a bunch of plants with different people in different departments doing different things who often didn't even come into contact with one another. The Europeans who had actually made films in Europe before coming to Hollywood were pretty rare, and our methods of working were equally rare. The Hollywood system, the Irving Thalberg School, got its results in one way, and we got ours in an entirely different way. There's certainly room for both methods in filmmaking, and I certainly have esteem for many of the Hollywood directors who worked in the system. The interviewer asks, I suppose the most amusing part of it is seeing critics barking up lots of wrong trees. While you were in Hollywood, did you adopt any other local practices such as conducting sneak previews? Well, actually, I had already conducted sneak previews in France 10 years earlier. But let me tell you about the sneak preview for I Married a Witch, which was very instructive. The studio maintained complete secrecy about it. Nobody knew where it would be held. The studio wanted a completely natural audience that wouldn't be affected by the presence of actors or studio people. A half hour before the preview, a studio limousine came to pick me up to take me to the theater. The only other studio people there were Buddy De Silva, Ida Warren, and Mark Connolly. After the show, Buddy De Silva was very happy. The audience enjoyed the picture very much, had laughed, had even applauded. He said, it's perfect, but I said, no, I have to change something. You're crazy, they loved it. Listen, Buddy, I'll meet you in your office tomorrow morning, and I'll show you what I mean. Then I started looking through the audience reaction cards. I was busily reading them when Buddy said, don't read them, count them. He was right in a way. The fact that so many people were interested enough to fill out a card was more important than their individual reactions. 
There were about 200 cards, most of them quite enthusiastic. But there was one that said simply, it stinks. I didn't feel bad about that because Preston Sturgis had told me beforehand that there was one man in town who went to every preview, apparently with the sole purpose of writing that very opinion, invariably on every card he filled out. Later, Preston asked me if Mr. Stinker had been at the preview, and I replied, yes, and he brought his family along with him. Another card answered the question, did you think anything was too long, by saying, yes, Veronica Lake's hair. As you can see, Buddy De Silva was right. The number of cards did count much more than what was written on them. The next day, I went to Buddy's office. He told me again that the picture was perfect and that I was crazy to change anything. I got out the transcriptions, the records we had made in the theater the night before during the performance. We put them on his phonograph and started listening. At one point near the end, over the dialogue, we could hear someone start to cough and then somebody else, until for a while, it seemed everybody in the house was coughing. I said, whatever's happening there has to be changed. It was easy to figure out the location in the film from the dialogue that was also recorded on the transcription. The coughing occurred during the witch's rather poetic dialogue just before she died. Since we had been showing the work print in the theater, it was easy to remove that part of the film when we went to cut the negative. Those coughs were just like the cards, better actually, since Mr. Stinker wasn't thinking about what he was doing when he coughed. Individually, the members of that audience could have been each one a genius. The reverse was probably more likely the case, but that doesn't matter at all. The audience can be a collection of imbeciles, idiots, and cretins. They may not know anything about movies. Perhaps they don't know anything about anything. But by bringing them together, a sort of collective genius arises from amongst them, a collective spontaneous way of reacting to your film. And that genius is right, no matter how wrong each of them might be separately. When they start coughing, you know you've lost their attention. And when you've lost their attention, it's time to start wondering what you've done wrong. Thanks for listening. Join me next time for episode 34 when I talk about the extraordinary career of Hollywood writer Adela Rogers St. John's.